You can open your Bibles with me this morning to Psalm 118. Psalm 118. And uh, you do have a copy of that psalm in your, in your bulletin as well. We'll use that here in a, in a minute or so. So feel free to follow along either in your Bibles or, or in that copy you've got in your bulletin. Today is Palm Sunday. Palm Sunday. And it's the, the Sunday in the Christian year when we remember the, the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem just days before his betrayal and his arrest and his crucifixion. And so the way Holy Week is set up is we remember Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem today on Palm Sunday, and then um, on Maundy Thursday we'll have a service here at the church where we'll remember the, the upper room and what Jesus said to his disciples at the institution of the Lord's Supper. And then on Good Friday, we remember the crucifixion. We don't have a, a service here at, at our church, but then on Sunday morning, of course, we remember the resurrection of Jesus. And we're giving away the ending here, but we already know the ending, <laughs> right? Jesus r rises again from the dead on the third day on, the, on Sunday morning. And so we'll gather out here on the lawn at, at 6 o'clock, bright and early on Sunday morning, to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus, and then we'll have a, a breakfast and, and then our, our service at the normal time on 10.30, at 10.30 on Sunday morning. But today is Palm Sunday, and, and we remember the, the entrance, the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. And so Kevin already, already read for us the, the passage from Mark that recounts this entrance of Jesus into Jerusalem. It was the eve of, of the Passover feast. And so the roads would have been crowded. It would have been shoulder to shoulder going through the gate into Jerusalem, a bit of a bottleneck. The streets would have been crowded with pilgrims, Jews from all over Judea and, and Samaria and, and Galilee and really from all over the the Greco-Roman world, flocking to Jerusalem for the, the high feast of the Passover. And the people shoulder to shoulder with Jesus and his disciples as they were going into Jerusalem that day were, were tired people. They were, they were tired because some of them had been walking for days. But the Jews were tired people for other reasons. Because for the last 600 years, they'd been praying for salvation. 600 years prior to Jesus walking in through those gates in Jerusalem, the southern kingdom of Judah, the last bastion of, of the kingdom of God's people, was torn down by the Babylonians. And the people were scattered into exile. And the last king on the throne of David was torn down. And the great kingdom of Israel, God's people, God's nation that he'd established under the throne of, of David and his descendants had fallen. And 70 years later, still some 500 years before Jesus, a handful of, of exiles had returned and began to rebuild Jerusalem under Ezra and Nehemiah, rebuilding the walls, rebuilding the temple, but it was a shadow of its former self. The old men who'd known the former temple wept when they saw the new temple. It just wasn't like it was before. And besides that, they were still under the thumb, first of the Persians and then of the Greeks and then of the Romans. They weren't a nation anymore, and there was no king on the throne of David. 
The people were a shadow of their former self. And for years, for hundreds of years, for generations, father had passed down to son, son to son, mother to daughter, the promises that the prophets had made during the time of the exile that one day a king would come, a Messiah king, and that he would restore the kingdom of David, that he would restore the kingdom of God, that a king would come and defeat the nations and restore the glory of Israel, the glory of Jerusalem, the glory of God's people. Zechariah in Zechariah 9 prophesied that this king would come riding on a donkey, riding on a young donkey, and that's how they would recognize this king, this Messiah coming into Jerusalem. These people were tired people and they'd been praying for years, Lord, would you save us? Lord, would you restore the glory of the people? And that's why there was such a hubbub at the gate that morning as Jesus mounted a donkey to ride into Jerusalem because the air was already electric with the rumors about this Jesus, this miracle worker, this prophet who spoke with authority, this prophet who taught like no one had ever heard in years. This prophet who just recently had apparently risen Lazarus of Bethany from the dead. And so the, the fever pitch around Jesus' ministry had reached a peak. And as Jesus, this miracle worker from Nazareth, got on a donkey and approached Jerusalem, his disciples began to put their robes and palm branches down on the road in front of him. And the, the crowd worked into this roar to the point where when they reached the gates, the people were, were shouting and singing, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, David. In other words, this is the king. This is the Messiah. He's finally come. Our salvation is here. He's riding on a donkey, entering the gates of Jerusalem. The king is at the gates. The king is at the gates. And the question I want to ask this morning is what kind of king is this Jesus? The king is at the gates. What kind of king is this Jesus? And and to learn that, I want to look at Psalm 118. When the people said, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, they weren't just making that up. They were quoting an old song they learned in Sunday school. Psalm 118. And it was a fitting song to sing for the Messiah who was going to come and restore the kingdom of David. Because Psalm 118 is, as far as we can tell, a David psalm. Now, it doesn't have the usual, um, the usual inscription underneath the psalm of, of David, but most scholars think this was a David psalm, and everything we, we see in it points to this. So look at Psalm 118. We're going to read it together here in a minute. Before we read it, I want to give you an idea of the structure and, and what we're about to read. If you were to look carefully at this song, you're going to notice that in most of the song, it's it's, it's in terms of I and me, okay? It's this one individual uh, who I think is David 
giving testimony about all the trouble he's been in and then all of the trouble that God has brought him out of. He's saying, God has been so good. He's been so steadfast. He's so strong. He saved me. He delivered me out of, out of all my trouble. And at the end of the psalm, you'll notice a shift in verses, um, let's see, verses 23 through 27. The language is no longer in terms of I and me. It's in terms of our and us. Okay, it's plural. So it's like in these verses, it's the whole congregation of the people singing, shouting back to David, joining in with, with the praise, right? It's like David saying, look at what God's done for me. And then all the people say, amen, look at what God's done for you. Isn't it amazing? Right? And then the last two verses, it shifts back to I and me. So it's David again, closing out the psalm with, with praise. And so what I'd like to do this, to start off this morning is to read this psalm. Um, and this is going to be a little bit different. I'm going to read most of the psalm, and you've got it in front of you in the bulletin. When we get to the bold on the back, which is the congregational portion of the psalm, I want everyone to stand up, and I want us to read it together. And I don't want you to read it like sort of like, yeah, Hosanna, Hosanna, bless you. Okay, shout it out as if your Savior is at the gates, because he is. Okay? So let's. I'm going to read it, and once we get to that, that bold part, stand up and and I'll keep reading. We'll, we'll read it together, okay? Psalm 118. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Let Israel say, his steadfast love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say, his steadfast love endures forever. Let those who fear the Lord say, his steadfast love endures forever. Out of my distress, I called on the Lord. The Lord answered me and set me free. The Lord is on my side, I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is on my side as my helper. I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. All the nations surrounded me. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me, surrounded me on every side. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me like bees, they went out like a fire among thorns. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. I was pushed hard so that I was falling, but the Lord helped me. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. Glad songs of salvation are in the tents of the righteous. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. The right hand of the Lord exalts. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. I shall not die, but I shall live and recount the deeds of the Lord. The Lord has disciplined me severely, but he has not given me over to death. Open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Stand together. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God, and he has made his light to shine upon us. Bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. 
You are my God, and I will give thanks to you. You are my God, I will extol you. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Have a seat. Let's pray together. Father, we're looking to your word this morning, and we want to see Jesus. And so we pray this morning that you would show to us the king at the gates, that you would introduce us to this king and show us what kind of king this Jesus is, this Jesus who was knocking at the gates of Jerusalem. And we pray that in his name you would grant us salvation. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The king is at the gates. And our question this morning, what kind of king is this? What kind of king is this Jesus? And so to answer that question, we're going to look at Psalm 118, which again is the psalm that, that is quoted here, the psalm of David, okay, the song about David. Now, why we should answer this question first. Why should Psalm 118 be anything that can tell us about Jesus if it's actually about David? And, and this is something we need to learn about how, how to read Scripture. On the day of Jesus' resurrection, he appeared to his disciples, a couple of his disciples, and he was actually in disguise. They didn't recognize him, and they didn't yet know for sure that Jesus had risen from the dead. This is in Luke 24 on the road to Emmaus. And, and he talks with them on the road, and they're expressing their confusion as to, well, why Jesus had to die and and they weren't, they weren't, they said, we thought he was the one who was to redeem Israel. Right? They'd lost hope because Jesus had been crucified. And, and to explain to them why Jesus had to die, Jesus goes and he starts from Moses and all the prophets. And he explains in all the Old Testament why it was that Jesus had to die and why it was that Jesus had to be glorified. And so according to Jesus, we can actually look to the Old Testament and see in the whole of the Old Testament prophecy about who Jesus is and who Jesus came to be. And Psalm 118 is, is, a, is prime territory for this because this psalm is about the king. It's about David. And Jesus came to be a better David, right? Where David failed, Jesus never fails, right? Jesus came as the son of David, Scripture says, to restore David's kingship. So Jesus is like David in some ways, and he's better than David. So as David was writing this psalm, filled with the Holy Spirit, it was actually Jesus inspiring him to write this, right? Jesus wrote the Bible, and Jesus is the main story of the Bible. So here in this song about David, we're actually going to get a picture of Jesus, and I hope we'll see that this morning. That's why the people quote it as Jesus is entering, the, um, entering Jerusalem, because they're like, oh, oh, this is a David thing, right? This is, this is Jesus being the king. Do we know any king songs? Yeah, Psalm 118, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Okay. What kind of king is this? First, we're going to see that Jesus is a righteous king who came to make sacrifice. He's a righteous king who came to make sacrifice. We're going to focus this morning on verses 19 through 27. This is a long psalm. We're not going to look at all of it. We're going to focus on verses 19 through 27. There's a shift in verse 19. 
for most of the psalm, it's David saying, I was in so much trouble, God delivered me. He's so good. And in verse 19, he, he turns and he says, Open to me the gates of righteousness, that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. And so David at this point turns and he's looking towards the temple. He doesn't specify what gate he's talking about here. It could be either the gate into Jerusalem or it could be the gate into the temple. But either way, he's, he's looking at the gates and he's saying, I want to go through there because I want to go up to the temple and I want to worship God, right? I want to enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. That's verse 19. And verse 27 is kind of the culmination of this because by verse 27, David has made it into the temple and, and we're told, this is actually the people singing, I believe, where it, they say, bind up the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar, right? So 19 through 27 is this progression where David's entering the city, entering the temple to, to thank the Lord um, in the temple, the place where God had appointed his people to worship in the old covenant, okay? So that's the, that's the progression. And you can see why this is kind of a mirror of Jesus, right? Jesus, at, on the day of the triumphal entry, entering into the gates and eventually actually going into the temple, okay? So David says, open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. It's interesting that he describes the gates as the gates of righteousness. What does he mean by that? In verse 20, he says, this is the gate of the Lord. This is these are righteous gates. These are the Lord's gates. And then he specifies that the righteous shall enter through it. So that this gate into worship God is a gate for the righteous to enter through. And so David here, I believe, is ascribing to himself a, a form of righteousness. Now, David was not perfectly righteous. He was a sinner, like we all are. Like we all have clay feet. Um, but David is described by God himself as a man after his own heart. And of all the kings of Israel, David is counted among the, the righteous ones. Right? So David's a righteous king entering into the city, and his goal, to make sacrifice, to worship God in making a sacrifice in the temple. So how is Jesus a better, a better David? Jesus, Jesus too, is a, was a righteous king that day entering into Jerusalem, but more righteous than David a sinless king, a perfect king, a perfectly righteous king, the very son of God, true God, true man, without sin, the only man who'd ever lived who hadn't sinned. He was a more righteous king, and he came to bring a better sacrifice. Amen. It's interesting, we're not told about Jesus worshiping in the temple. At this point, he goes into the temple, and he sort of turns around. Eventually, he turns over some tables. Um, but he doesn't worship in the temple. He doesn't make a sacrifice that we're told of. It's because Jesus had come to make a better sacrifice than David had, right? David went in, and eventually he, he slaughtered an animal, right, and burnt it on the altar as a sacrifice to God, like God had instructed in the Old Testament, right? This is how you're supposed to worship. And the reason for all these sacrifices is Sometimes it's confounding to us in our day. It's like, well, what, what on earth is all this sacrifice for? It's to deal with a problem of sin. It's to deal with a problem of sin. 
We're sinners. And Paul says the wages of sin is death. And so the animal sacrifices were a, a way for God to teach the people something has to be dealt with with regard to your sin. If God is just, someone has to die for sins. And so the animal sacrifices were a way for God to teach the people your sin has to be put on something else. Someone else has to die the death you deserve. And so as the, as the, the, the men of Israel came to make sacrifice, what they do is they put their hand on the head of the animal and, and slaughter the animal as a way of actually, in a sense, signifying that the animal's taking on the sins, the animal's dying in the place of the people. It's a sort of gruesome scene, but our sin is a gruesome scene. Someone has to die for sinners. And Jesus came to make a better sacrifice, not to bind up an animal up to the horns of the altar, but to bind himself up to the, the horns of the altar. The writer of Hebrews says that all those animal sacrifices in the Old Testament, they actually weren't sufficient. They actually weren't enough. Those animal sacrifices were only pictures of a better sacrifice, a more perfect sacrifice, which is Jesus. His body broken, his blood shed on the cross. The only perfect man who's ever lived. The only one who could have actually died for anyone else. Because he's the only one who ever lived who didn't have to die for his own sins. And he's the only man who ever lived who was also eternal God in the same person. And so he could take in, in himself an eternal weight of sin. So that we understand that, that Jesus, only days after his triumphal entry, would worship God following his father in obedience, in taking upon himself the sins of his people on the cross, bearing on himself the wrath of God in our place. Who is this king at the gates? He's a righteous king. He's a righteous king who came to make sacrifice. And it's so important that we understand this. The people of Israel were, were longing for a king. They were longing for salvation. And we too need salvation. And we too actually are longing for it, whether or not we realize it. Like most of us realize we're looking for something. It's like there's, there's something missing. Right? This is the human experience. It's like everyone everywhere is looking to try and make things right, to try and fit things together. It's like, what can I find that will save me, that can actually like make everything click into place. That's what the Israelites were looking for. The Jews, they were like, Messiah will do it, right? Messiah will save us. Messiah can make everything right. And Jesus wasn't just the Messiah for Israel. He's actually the Savior of, of the world. Because the fundamental problem, the fundamental flaw beneath that longing, beneath our longing to click into place is the rupture of our relationship with God. And there's all kinds of worldviews and philosophies and religions out there that'll give you all kinds of wrong diagnosis to the human problem. Okay. There's a lot of people out there saying, this is your problem, this is your problem, this is your problem. At bottom, our problem is a rift with God that we've turned away from our Creator 
that in our sin we've cut ourselves off from the author of life. And so we've actually chosen for ourselves self-destruction and death in sin, and we need a remedy. We need a medicine for our sin. We need somehow for our guilt to be covered. We need somehow for, for the blackness of our hearts to be washed clean and to be restored to relationship with God after we've spent our lives spitting at him in rebellion against him. And the message of the king at the gates is that God has not abandoned us in our rebellion and in our brokenness, but in love. God the Father sent Christ the Son, the very Son of God, who came willingly in love that he might be crucified in our place. That on the cross as Jesus died, he bore our death, he bore our sins, so that by faith in him, by coming to him, we can actually be forgiven, that rifts can be healed, we can know our God, we can be restored to relationship with our creator, we can be freed from this awful weight of sin and of guilt, and restored to relationship with God. This is the message of the righteous king, the righteous king who came to make a perfect sacrifice. And we have to reckon with this. We, we, all of us, are, as sinners, exist on the precipice of eternity. Be, because of our sin, we, we face in front of ourselves the prospect of death and of hell. Um, and there's, there's two kinds of people in the world, both sinners, both unrighteous. There's two kinds of people in the world. There's people on the precipice of death and hell, who have looked to Christ and found in him salvation. And there are people who refuse to look to Christ. We find, all of us find ourselves in the same predicament. But the question is, do we find ourselves among the crowd at the gate shouting, Hosanna, which means save us, literally in Hebrew, save us, Lord, save us, righteous king? Or do we find ourselves in the other crowd come Friday shouting, crucify him, we want nothing to do with this man. There is no such thing as spiritual ambivalence. To, to choose not to consider Christ is actually to choose to reject Christ. We're on the precipice, all of us. We do not know how many days we have left. Which way will we go? We have to deal with this question. And Christ is here at the gates with open arms. The righteous sacrifice saying, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. What kind of king is this? He's a righteous king who came to make sacrifice. Second, he's a rejected king who has been vindicated. He's a rejected king who has been vindicated Verse 21, David here again, speaking to God, saying, I thank you that you have answered me and become my salvation, right? In view of all that he'd been surrounded by, he's like, thank you, God, for saving me, for delivering me. And he says in verse 22, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And the, the picture here is of a work site and a big old hunk of rock. 
and the, the foreman's coming around and evaluating all the various bits of rock, and he looks at this one, he's like, nah. I don't want that going anywhere near my building. Not having that rock. And then in a twist of fate or a twist of providence, more accurately, the stone ends up being the, actually the foundation stone. Right? The one that was rejected actually be becomes the most important stone in the foundation. And on its first horizon, this is applied to David. Right? David was the rejected king on a number of occasions. On one occasion, his, his own son booted him out for a bit. Right? And the whole issue with Absalom. And on a number of occasions, David was in real trouble. And then God vindicated him and delivered him. And the king who was rejected ends up being the king once more, exalted as king. And this is a picture of Jesus. Jesus is the new and the better David. Jesus, too, was rejected. Actually, rejected in a way more fully and completely than David ever was rejected by his people. It was only days after the people had welcomed him into Jerusalem, hailed him as king, that a crowd was crying, crucify him. The very people Christ had come to save, the very people for whom Jesus was the fulfillment of all their hopes, of all the Old Testament expectations, it was all in Jesus. And after just a couple of days in Jerusalem, they're crying, crucify him, we want nothing to do with this guy. the stone that the builders rejected. Jesus was a rejected king. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Again, we know how the story ends. The morning of the th third day, Jesus rose again from the dead. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And it took the disciples a while to begin to process this. Like we were talking about, those disciples on the road to Emmaus, they're like, just can't get their minds around how the Messiah would be crucified. Like, how does that make sense? How is that the plan? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The first line of the congregational response to this is in verse 23. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. In other words, this was the plan all along, that the stone that was rejected would become the cornerstone, that the king who was dejected would become exalted, that the king who was crucified would be raised again from the dead. And that actually through his crucifixion, in his death on the cross, Jesus achieved his greatest victory. It's actually in his, rejected, in his rejection that Jesus won for us salvation. It's not like it was an accident that Jesus went to the cross. Peter says, he finally got it in Acts 2, in his sermon in Pentecost, that, it was, that Christ was crucified, he was delivered over to death, by the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. 
that it was God's definite plan. It was the Lord's doing that Jesus would be crucified. And it was the Lord's doing that he was raised from the dead on the third day. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone for our salvation. This king whose own people threw him out has actually become the foundation, the cornerstone for God's saving all his people and remaking the whole of the cosmos. It's this rejected king who has been vindicated. Jesus is the righteous king who makes sacrifice. He's the rejected king who has been vindicated. And finally, he's the blessed king who brings salvation. It's the blessed king who brings salvation. Verse 23 again. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. This is the disciples' response once they finally get it, once they finally see the resurrected Jesus, right? Oh my word, it was God's plan all along. Praise the Lord, right? This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. The ultimate day that we rejoice in and are glad in? Resurrection Sunday. The resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Of course, originally, this would have been the people of Israel welcoming David in. right? That's kind of the picture we get. David coming into the city and the people saying, Yay! God has saved. And a lot rode on the king in, in these days. right? As you read the, the Chronicles of the Old Testament, it's like, when the king's righteous, the people are righteous, and God blesses them. When the king's unrighteous, the people are unrighteous, and God judges them. It's like it really matters what the king does. really matters where the leaders go. And so it's, it's the same with David. It's like if, if God's blessing David and, and David's being saved, the people are being saved. Right? When God exalts David, the people are exalted. It's just a picture of Jesus. Right? Jesus is the better king. When Jesus is exalted, we're exalted. When Jesus is resurrected, we're resurrected. Amen? It's fascinating what happens in verse 25. And this is, the, this is the verse that's quoted by the people as Jesus comes into the city. Save us, we pray. Save us, we pray, in Hebrew is Hosanna. Okay, Hosanna. Hosanna, O Lord. O Lord, Hosanna, give us success. Okay. Save us. This is the only petition in this psalm. The whole rest of the psalm is thanksgiving and it's praise. It's look at what God has done. And this is the one line in the whole psalm where the people are, are asking for something. They're saying, save us, God. Save us. And it's sort of strange that the people would ask this. Because the whole psalm is about how God has already saved, past tense. Right? And they go on to say, verse 26, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God, and he's made his light to shine upon us. Right? God saved us. He's made his light to shine upon us. So why are the people saying, save us, if God's already saved them? And I'll use here a, a sports analogy, which you don't usually get from me. Uh, when I was in high school, I, was, I played in the pep band, so I went to all the home, home football games. 
which I really enjoyed. And I had some buddies on the, on the team, so it was fun to watch them play. And, um, and there's just a really special moment when you see one of your buddies break through the line and the, like the whole road is clear to the end zone, right? And they've got the ball and they're just running and you know they're gonna make it, right? The end zone is in sight and you can see it. You're like, oh my word, we're gonna get a touchdown. Like, that's amazing. And what do you say as you see your buddy inevitably headed towards the, the end zone? You get up on your feet and you say, go, 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 right? Get it, get it. Because salvation is in sight, right? Because you can see it. It's like salvation's right there. So you're like, go, go, go. I think that's what these people are doing as David's coming into the city. They're like, save us. Because salvation is there. Because they can see it. It's already in sight. And that's what the people are doing as Jesus is entering the city. They're saying, Hosanna, save us. Because this is the Savior. Because this is Messiah. Like, praise the Lord. He's finally come. Hosanna, save us, God. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord, is our, the Lord is God, and he has made his light to shine upon us. Who is this king? He's the blessed king who brings salvation. He's the blessed king who is salvation personally. Jesus is our salvation. He's our salvation from sin. He's our salvation from death. He's our salvation from bondage into joy and eternal life. And so again, I ask the question, how, how have you greeted Jesus? Have you joined the chorus and said, Hosanna, save us, save us, save me, Lord Jesus. I encourage you to ponder that this, this Easter week. What have you done with this crucified Christ? And for those of you, you who are already a part of the chorus, I'd encourage you this week to ponder both the crucifixion of Jesus, the humiliation of Jesus, the love of Jesus on display on the cross. My prayer is that we would, like this is a wonderful time of year to, to consider these things freshly and to renew our hearts in the, in the love of Christ poured out on the cross. Right? At the beginning of the Last Supper, the Apostle John records that having loved his own, he loved them till the end. And then on Easter Sunday, what an opportunity to refresh ourselves in the joy of Jesus, right? That as we consider Jesus resurrected, Jesus vindicated, that we would join the chorus and say, go, go, go. Jesus is even now seated at the right hand of the Father where he reigns where he is building his kingdom, and he will return one day. He's on his way to the end zone. We're on the way to the end zone. He's making all things new. He's making us new. And the joy of Easter season is that we can join in and say, Hosanna! Go, go, go! Praise the Lord! 
Save us, O Lord, because this king is at the gates and he is our salvation. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you, we thank you, we thank you for Jesus. Apart from you, what, what are we? Poor, wretched, blind, miserable. But in you there is such life, such rest, such deep forgiveness, such everlasting hope. Lord Jesus, we thank you. Lord, Father, we thank you for sending your son Jesus. We thank you for this king at the gates. And we pray in this Easter season that we would learn to welcome him well, to greet this king with joyful praise. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.